0: Our scripture reading today will come from 1 Samuel 13 and 14. You have the book of Joshua, then Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 13. I'm going to be reading just the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 13, and then the first 24 verses of 1 Samuel 14. Uh, They are one continuous story and account, so they will flow together. And as you turn there... I would like to bring greetings from the saints at Redeemer OPC in Atlanta, Georgia, just down the road a few hours, Mm -hmm. and from my family. We are overjoyed to be here. I'm very thankful to Mike for the invitation to come. We've been praying for you all. It's great to be with you in person and uh, to bring God's word today. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and then verses uh, 1 through 24 of the next chapter. It is a longer portion of scripture. If it's easier to pay attention and sit, I'm not going to be concerned about that. It's much more important that you hear and understand the word of God. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And then if you would go to verse 14, what happens very briefly in the middle is Saul doesn't wait for Samuel, but he offers up a sacrifice himself, which he was not to do. So he sinned against the Lord. And then we come in chapter 14 and verse one. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side and the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The front of one faced northward, opposite Michmash, and the other southward, opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earthquakes; so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, now call the roll, and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with them assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to beth The grass withereth. The flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You may be seated. While we will be considering much of this passage today, our text is primarily chapter 14 and verse 6, which I'll read here again before we pray. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be. That the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let us pray. O Lord our God, your servants are listening. We ask that you would now speak to us by your word and spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Philistines. What comes to mind when you think of the Philistines? Perhaps, children, when you hear the Philistines, you might immediately go to one of those greatest of all Old Testament historical accounts, David and Goliath. You remember, Goliath was that great giant from the city of Gath, a city of the Philistines. And by the hands of one young shepherd boy, the Lord brought down that great giant of the Philistines. The Philistines were always a thorn in the side of Israel. The Israelites, when they went into Canaan, they were to... Get rid of all the Canaanites. And they stopped doing that shortly after the days of Joshua. The Philistines, they, they hugged the coastline of, of the promised land. And there they were on the coast with all that fertile soil and with all, the, with, all the, uh, with, with all the shipyards that were there. They had the coast and they had strong armies. Uh, perhaps you might think of Samson, who fought against the Philistines all his days and had great triumphs over the Philistines, even at one time killing a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ox. But you know, you can go before the judges and before the Israelites were known as the Israelites. You can go back to Jacob and to Abraham and to Isaac. And Isaac was in the land of the Philistines wandering after his father's death. And Isaac went to the wells that his father had dug and he had a problem. The wells were all filled up. The Philistines had filled up the wells that Abraham had dug. And Isaac had to go dig them again because those great enemies of Israel had filled them up and stopped the water. Well, the text of scripture comes to us today with this word for the Philistines, uncircumcised. We might understand from this in the Old Testament scripture, what's being said here is ungodly, apart from God. They had no portion with God, nor did he have any portion with them. They were the ungodly Philistines And what were they doing once again, but invading the people of God, invading Israel. They had a time of peace during the days of Samuel's judgment over Israel. But now that Israel has rejected not Samuel, but the Lord, they rejected the Lord by demanding for themselves a king. And now that they have that king, Saul is before them, not in the first year, but in the second year of his reign, two years in. The Philistines have left their borders and they're coming back in once again to trample on Israel and to take it over and to attack its king. I hope we can't help but think as we read a text like this of what's going on around us today. For even as Israel was referred to as the church in the wilderness, so today we are that church once again in a wilderness surrounded by enemies. Enemies that would seek to invade us if they could. Enemies that would seek to harm us and destroy us. Maybe not with swords and with spears and chariots and horsemen as the Philistines went out against Israel with. But certainly they come with their lies. They come promoting pride, by which the Lord has said that pride comes before destruction. And they would tell even the Christian that they are to lift high the banner of pride, lift high the banner of abortion the murder of the most innocent. Just do that church and the world will side with you. And how many churches have done just that? They followed those that have invaded the church and they've done exactly what the world has asked of them. And in return, they've gained nothing and they've lost everything. There was a survey done in 2021 by Lifeway Research that found that in in that year of 2021, 4,500 churches closed the doors. Now, several thousand opened. They estimated about 3,000 opened for a net loss by one estimate of 1,500 churches in the United States alone. How has the enemy come in and invaded the kingdom of God in such a way? We can look around and see great former bastions of the truth, fortresses of the truth. And they're a faint shadow of what they once were. In many places, maybe take Princeton Seminary. The seminary of Charles Hodge, probably some of his books in the library here. And yet, does that seminary promote the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scripture anymore? It hasn't done so for many years. You can look at some of the great old church buildings that are around the United States in almost every city on the East Coast. How many of those great stone structures that were made to exalt God's name? How many? is the gospel of Jesus Christ being promoted and proclaimed with even a small amount of truth. In many of them, rainbow flags are flying. In many of them, those that would call themselves bishops and apostles are leading people from darkness to darkness rather than from darkness to the light. It is, it can seem, perhaps sometimes it seems this way to me, that the church is very small. If we look at it just with the eyes of the flesh, we can think of it almost like a puddle in a desert. The sun is beating upon it. It's drying up. Soon, perhaps, it will be gone. Well, that was certainly the case of what it looked like in Israel in the day of Jonathan and his armor bearer. For there was a great trembling, not among the enemies of God, but among the people of God. And God would call us in this text to remember him and the power of his glory. We are to remember him and the power of God, and remembering him, then to have faith in Jesus Christ, having faith in Jesus Christ, then to advance in the Christian life for the glory of God, to remember him and his power and his glory. As I was thinking about what text of scripture to bring today and praying about that, I don't remember what it was that reminded me of this, but somehow I was reminded that Today happens to be approximately the 1990th year since Pentecost. Approximately, give or take a few years. Pentecost, fifty days after Jesus rose from the dead. And you remember we just read from that sermon on Pentecost that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2. That there were but 70 or maybe a little over a hundred who were there gathered praying, and that was it. All the Christians in Jerusalem. They were but small, they were in one room. All the Christians. Maybe most of the Christians in the whole world gathered in one room, in one city, in one country. And it was there that the Holy Spirit came down upon them with power and they spoke in tongues, which meant this. They spoke in foreign languages so that people could hear clearly in their own native language the glory and the word of God. We must remember the power of God. Oh, that the church, every church would remember the power and glory of God who reigns on high even today. Well, first we see in this text what led to Jonathan and his armor bearer going up, and that is the rejection of God. The people of Israel had rejected God, and therefore they were trembling. First Samuel 13, verse 7 said, Some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Why were the people of God trembling? They should be the ones that were most confident of all people. But there they were trembling because they and their king had rejected God. There's the first reason. But also because they looked out at what was coming upon them. And what an army. Very rare in ancient military history to have more chariots than cavalry. Chariots were to bring this great, this great strike and terror upon the foot soldiers. And then the cavalry would come in behind them. And then the foot soldiers would sweep it all up. The Philistines are so powerful. They have 30,000 chariots and 6,000 cavalry. There's so many foot soldiers that have invaded Israel, the Bible doesn't even number them. And this is interesting because when Jehoshaphat is invaded later on in Israel's history, the Bible numbers them up to a million. God numbers them up to a million. Maybe here, more than one million Philistines that are coming against them. The scripture just says, more than the sand of the sea for number. That's the force that's coming upon them. For that reason, Israel surround, gathered around Saul, they tremble. There is another reason. We didn't read it. It's at the end of chapter 13. And that is um, maybe the most profound reason of all. There were no standard weapons in Israel, there were no blacksmiths in Israel the Philistines had removed all the blacksmiths to the land of the Philistines so that if any farmer needed his farming tools to be sharpened, they had to go to the Philistines. Why? Because the Philistines were disarming Israel. The the Israel had had great victories over the Philistines in years past. Maybe it could happen again. So the Philistines got smart and they said, we are not gonna let you have any blacksmiths so that you can't have any swords or spears or weapons of war. There were two swords in all the army of Israel, one with King Saul one with Jonathan, his son. All these reasons, the people trembled. And as they trembled, what do we see happened? They trembled looking out on the world and in its multitude and in its invasion of Israel, they looked out and they divided into four groups. The first group we read in verse six of chapter 13, they went into hiding. The scripture says they hid in caves and thickets in rocks in holes and in pits. Anywhere they could find something to cover them, they went and they hid They ran away from the enemy to hide. A second group, they went even further. They fled over the Jordan. They went further east. They retreated. They figured, well, if if the Philistines kill Saul, the war will be over. We'll be subject to the Philistines. That's happened again, but at least we'll live. So here were the Philistines invading from the west and coming east. Saul was between them and the Jordan River. So part of the army ran over the Jordan River to, to to, um, to Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh. They fled. They retreated even from the promised land. There was a third group that they remained with Saul, uh, about 600. And what did they do? They decided that they needed to modify their worship. They needed to offer strange fire before the Lord by someone who was not ordained to bring the sacrifice before the Lord. They thought maybe the people are scattering because we need to offer a sacrifice. So they changed their worship and they face the consequences and, of course, the wrath of God and Samuel upon them. But there is a fourth group. We don't read about them until verse 21 of chapter 14, because as the battle's raging, we hear that there were those who had long ago seen this invasion coming, and they said, we can't beat them. Let's join them. There was a group of Israelites that had gone over to the Philistines, and they were living among the Philistines and helping them as camp workers. They essentially enslaved themselves to the Philistine army so that they might live. That was a fourth group. And I wonder if we can make this picture and and glean this instruction from the scripture. How much different is it with God's people today? As the world comes and presses in from every side. As we see seemingly new things that shock us from a nature of sin almost every week. As we see things um, that when I was a kid, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, I would never have imagined to see the things that my kids just hear about as normal, coming from corporations and from, uh, from celebrities that are on the TV, promoting sins that are should be unspeakable. And what has happened in the church? Many churches have decided to give up on doctrine, retreat from the truth of God's word. Here we have these precious promises that have given to us by God, once delivered to the saints for all time, that we might know him and the power of his glory. And so many churches, so many places that were once promoting the glorious gospel. Now they're saying we will give it up. No longer will we say what scripture, what God calls sin. We won't call it sin. No longer those things that God hates will we say anymore. No longer will we call sinners to repentance. That is, uh, that, that, would be, uh, that would be offensive to them so we won't do it. They're retreating. From the glorious fortress of God's word and the rock on which a man stands, he'll never fall off of it because the rock is Christ. The church all around seems to be retreating, it seems to be hiding, giving up all those precious doctrines and trying to survive to fight another day. But the problem is, there's nothing left to fight for once everything has been given up. And once the church looks like the world, there's no difference between the world and the church. Others have taken a different route. They've gone like Saul and they thought, maybe we just need to have new worship. Maybe if we just modify our worship and make it more of, uh, make it more of something like a social media event or a, um, or a great entertainment, then maybe those that are scattering will come back in. And some churches, they seem to have success with that. There's some mega churches Uh, That you could go to on particular holidays and maybe underneath your seat, you'd have a card on it. And if you pull out the card, it'll tell you you won a brand new car. That type of perk is a great way to draw people to church. You might win a car today. I wonder if this church advertised, don't do this, but I wonder if this church advertised that a free car would be given out in worship today. How many people from the city of Marion would be here? Games with the worship of God. Because like Saul, Saul saw the people scattering. and He said, "Well, I'm going to go worship God in my own way. The people have done that today. The church has done it. We're going to worship God in our own way to stop the people from scattering. But what happened? It didn't work. The people still scattered. The false worship didn't help. Others, meaning well, meaning well, they think the church just needs new programs. Maybe we just need a 17th new Bible translation in the last 10 years. Then the church will stop scattering. Maybe if we just had a new confessional statement, the church would stop scattering. All these things we're looking to, to maybe some good things, some less good things, some sinful things. But the church is not looking to where the help for the church always comes, from the God of the church, who is all powerful to save to the uttermost. But I speak generally. Generally, And that's the general description of the people of Israel at this day of battle. But it wasn't the only position. There were but two who didn't fall into one of these four camps of those that were fleeing from the enemy. There was Jonathan and this armor bearer whose name is not recorded even for us in scripture, but he's known as a faithful servant who had no fear of the enemy. I like to think because his trust, like Jonathan's, was in the Lord God. Faith in God leads to boldness in few. Two men who didn't flee, hide, worship falsely, but went forth, Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan sees the great armies coming before him, and he doesn't go and hide. He says, this is an opportunity for the Lord to work. Let's go see what God will do. Never has there been so many Philistines in our land before. This can be the greatest day of victory that Israel has ever seen. Because he had confidence in the Lord, his God. He didn't wait for God to do something. He said, God's called me. He's called me to go out among these uncircumcised Philistines. He's called me to go. We could certainly bring this to our present situation, which is not by swords of this world, not by firearms, But by the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, don't make that mistake. And I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be misunderstood there. But we can certainly go out as God has called us to go, even that Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. Will we go? God doesn't say, wait till I show you. He's already told us all church what we are to do. Go out into the world proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Too many are waiting to see the Lord do something and then maybe they'll follow. Too many are waiting to see other Christians go and contend earnestly for the faith and then maybe they'll go do it as well. But what is the testimony of scripture? God's people are going about God's business. When God does great things among his people. Think for example Simeon, that old man who was in the te- in the temple praying and worshiping God all his days, waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And there he saw him. As Joseph and Mary brought their child, Simeon, who was about the work of the Lord, saw the Messiah and held him in his own hands. Or Elisha, who was about his calling, which was to be a farmer. He was plowing his fields. He was at work. He was laboring. He was known among the community. He was one that gave freely to those that were in need. It was Elisha laboring for God when Elijah, the prophet, walked by and threw his mantle upon him. Eventually, the Lord would give to Elisha a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. He was at work. Zacharias, when he went in the temple, he was carrying out his duties as priest when he had the vision that at first he didn't believe, but then he did. When he had the vision and and he saw the angel and met the angel in the temple, he was about the work of the kingdom when God worked wonderfully. What about that homemaker, Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1? She was about the worship of God with her family at the annual feast in Jerusalem. And there she was praying to the Lord for a son. She was worshiping God and praying, and the Lord answered her prayer and gave her a son whose name is very, the very namesake of this book and the next book of Scripture. Jonathan went about the work of the Lord. He was called to work, to go, not to work to earn his salvation, but because he had been saved, he went forward and worked to serve the Lord. What about the other Israelites? Shouldn't he wait for them? Maybe wait for them and then go. No, Jonathan knew that this, this is the day in the hour of salvation. This is the day for the Lord to work. Maybe he comes back tomorrow. He would not wait for them. This was the day. So he says to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to these uncircumcised Philistines. What a statement. I don't know which is more profound. The statement that Jonathan made or that his armor bearer said, yes, let's go do everything that's in your own heart. What faith in that armor bearer? who would follow this man that the world, and maybe, sadly, even some in the church, would say, that's madness. Wait till there are more to go with you. But how, how could Jonathan do this? How could Jonathan go over against this multitude? I think this is where the text comes to bear on us today. Jonathan was able to go forward against this huge, massive army of Philistines, chariots, horsemen, and foot soldiers. Because of this, he knew the Lord God His savior. He had faith in the Lord God, who had done glorious things in the past that had been spoken all his life. He knew that God, and he knew that God was the powerful God, the sovereign Lord, that there was none beside him and none could stand against the holy God of Israel. He had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those others, at best, they were weak in faith. At worst, they had no faith. That's why they couldn't advance. They feared the world. Those that are on the Lord's side need not fear the world because he who is with us is greater than he who is against us. Or as Elisha saw on that day in Dothan, as he's surrounded by the Syrian armies, he prayed and God opened his servant's eyes and all around the Syrian armies and all around Elisha were chariots and horsemen of fire. Those that were with Elisha that day when it was just two of them in Dothan were more than those that were against him. And Jonathan had that same faith. That he who was with them was greater than all those that were against them. Do you have that faith? Do you know that Savior Jesus Christ that gives such confidence to sinners that are saved by his blood. That they might advance in this life and live for his glory without fear of men. The Lord Jesus Christ gives that faith to all who call upon him. He does not cast them out. Jonathan was like Abraham before him. He rejoiced in this he rejoiced to see the day of Christ and Jonathan saw it by faith. Have you seen and do you know the risen Lord Jesus Christ who came in the fullness of time to bear the sins of many that all who call upon the name of the Lord might this day be saved? What a glorious message. So many can't live for Christ and can't really live much at all because they're still wearing the burden and the guilt and the punishment of the curse of their sin on them. It has not been taken away, and those that are carrying such a burden cannot do much good in this life and will only suffer torments in the life to come. Jonathan didn't have that burden because the weight of Jonathan's sin and the curse and the guilt that had been brought upon him for his sin was removed by the blood of Christ. That's why he advanced. That's why Christians can live today for the glory of God, because of what Christ has done And think about Jonathan. He was looking ahead. Christ hadn't come yet, but he believed the promises way back in Genesis 3.15 that God would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. He believed it. And God counted that faith as righteousness, just like we today who believe in Christ look back at the work that Christ has done, believe by faith, and that faith is accounted righteousness, isn't it? According to Romans 4 and 5. Jonathan, had an unshakable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew who he was. He knew that what he did and he knew what he certainly could do. Do we have that faith? Do we read the scripture day by day? And do we believe what we read? That the God who tore down the walls of Jericho with a shout is our God today. That he is the one reigning on his throne right now, ruling over all enemies Or do we think the world, it has all the academies, it has all the educational institutions, it's all over, Christ must be off his throne. Are we waiting for Christ to be on his throne? Or do we believe, as he said, that he ascended up to the right hand of the majesty on high, that he's ruling today? Do we believe that it is he who who opened up the Red Sea? when the river was in front, or the sea was in front of Israel, the army of Egypt was behind them, that God caused a wind to come, he divided the Red Sea, the Israelites walked through it on dry land, that that same God then brought the waters back and drowned the Egyptian army, that that God is the living and true God and the Christian's God today. Do we believe that as we read these great stories? That powerful God is powerful today. Do we believe it? This is the God who defeated the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Midianites. He stopped the mouths of lions that day when Daniel was thrown into the den. He quenched the fire on the plains of Dure after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown in. He brought salvation to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh through a rather reluctant preacher. God was not restrained then. God is not restrained today. He can save by many or by few, according as he pleases. There is a great call here that we not look to the right and to the left to see who else will go. Oh, yes, I can tell you it is a great encouragement and confidence for me to advance in the cause for Christ when I see my brothers and sisters advancing as well. That is great. There's safety in numbers. There's joy in numbers. But the Lord here in this particular passage is saying, and if they don't. Advance for the kingdom of God. Go forth into the day of battle that the Lord has called us to, this spiritual battle that's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of the world. Look, the Lord is saying, look at me. I am the powerful God. I am the one that is and there is none beside me. Do you believe it? Then look to me and follow me. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as Hebrews 12 tells us. This is the one who went forth on that day out of the garden to that cross. And there one man died that many might be made righteous. Our God can save by many or by few. But so often in scripture, don't we see him showing his power and glory through few? Not always, but often, often through few. As he shows us today, he is the Lord and there is none beside him. But look what happens as people go forth in faith. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they take hold of the promises that have been given to them. They have faith, unshakable faith in the glory of God, but more than that, the power of God. They have not a mere appearance of godliness, but they have the power of God among them. They know that God is able to save to the uttermost, so they go forward. Jonathan lays out this this, um, test, as it were, I think probably for his armor bearer's confidence, for our own encouragement in the faith. And he says, if they call us up, then we know that the Lord's delivered them into our hands. And God has made this remarkable place where the garrison of the Philistines is. There are these two rocks, Bozes and Sina. And it seems like from the scripture, the, the Philistines are moving, are moving from west to east. Israel's camped over here in the east. Jonathan and his armor bearer go west. And here are these rocks that are set up on the north and on the south in front of the Philistine garrison. So that as Jonathan and his armor bearer go through the rocks, This might be getting a little bit too symbolic, but maybe even like a cleft in the rock. But as Jonathan and his armor bearer go through the rocks, they are guarded on the right hand and the left. There are no Philistines to the side of them. There is Israel behind them. The army is just in front. They need to keep their eyes forward. And as they go forward, they can see the whole enemy. Their flanks are secure. God is going for them. And what happens? They start having victory. The scripture says that 20 20 people of the Philistines fall down in about half an acre Uh, The picture is that Jonathan is cutting them down and wounding them, and then his armor bearer is finishing them off. That's the picture. It's a military picture. Um, It's historic. Uh, We don't know about the warfare of Christianity like them, But maybe it's like this. One one planted, another watered, and then God brings the increase. It's not necessarily going to be one man or one woman that God is going to bring salvation through, but many working together at different times to bring the battle to the enemy for the glory of God. They have their flanks secure. They go forward. And as 20 fall, something happens. Remember in chapter 13, the Israelites were trembling. 20 Philistines fall among an army that God doesn't doesn't even tell us the number of. And suddenly there's a trembling in the host of the Philistines. What a trembling. We've seen it before at different times in Israel's history. They start fighting each other. What an army. Imagine that army where suddenly they go from being in lockstep with each other to now they're fighting each other and killing each other. A great trembling happens. But it's not just a trembling among the people. God does more than that. God causes the ground to tremble. There's an earthquake among the, the people of the Philistines. So they're not only in fear because they're being cut down. They're not only in fear because now people are brothers are fighting brothers among the Philistines. But now the whole ground itself is shaking. Because two men went forth in faith in the power and majesty of God Almighty, and they are now seeing the salvation of their God. But I think what's most fascinating that we should draw our attention to today is not so much even what happens among the Philistines, but what happens among Israel as two men go forward in faith. There were all these groups doing different things because of their fear. As two go forward in faith and see the enemy fall in the smallest amount, 20 men is nothing. You could have an accident that kills 20 men in an army of over a million. 20 men is small. And I don't mean to minimize life, but you get the picture here of a military, an army at war. 20 men is small. But it's 20 men that have been cut down by the faith of two. And as Israel sees this happening, the scripture tells us the ones that were in hiding, they came out. The ones that were worshiping falsely, they revived, at least for a bit. The ones that had even gone over and were now living in the Philistine camp, maybe as their slaves, they take up their swords and they rally around the banner of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Everybody that was in hiding, everyone that had scattered, they now come together and they see the power of God once again and they go forward and join the fight. They join the fight. There's the example. I'd like to think that many of those people repented of their sin, that they had been such cowards when God was able to save by many or by few, as he did that day. All of Israel revived, as it were, and they came out to the fight. There are many things that we can learn for us in this spiritual warfare that we are in today. And I would remind you, uh, as you think about this passage and throughout the whole Old Testament, that God has given all of scripture for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped to every good work. These battle stories, these military stories, they are for us. For our instruction in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has called us to. I want to think about just a few examples here today for our instruction. Does God need all the churches of the world or even a single denomination like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church To be of one mind before bringing a great religion, great idols of the world, great philosophies of men down to nothing. Does anything restrain the Lord today from bringing down Mormonism by the teaching of one man? No, nothing restrains the Lord. He can save by many or by few. He caused that Philistine idol, Dagon, to fall over. There were no men. It was just the Ark of the Covenant. And there, the Philistine idol, the fish god. What a god that the Philistines worshipped. Half fish, half man. He fell down in front of the ark. So the Philistines lifted him up again. And the next day he fell down and his head came off that time. Nothing restrains the Lord. He's all powerful. He doesn't even need men or women, boys or girls. But he uses them for his glory. And he calls them to go forth. He can bring down the great religions of the world by, by many or by few. He's done it before. He is able to do it again. Does the Lord need every member of this church or a hundred other churches to pray to him in order for him to answer prayer? Should you stop praying because you're worried that your neighbor in the pew might not be praying with you on those same things? Should you stop praying because you think you're the only church, maybe in Marion or North Carolina, that's praying for God to revive the nation? No, you keep praying. Joshua, one man, he prayed and the sun stood still. Never happened before, has it never happened again? One man prayed, Elijah prayed, it stopped raining. Elijah prayed on that Mount Carmel in front of all Israel and many Gentiles, Assyrians could see Mount Carmel from their land and in front of Ahab and all the prophets of Baal. He prayed and no sooner had he finished praying and God sent fire down from heaven and a people that was worshiping Baal, they fell down on their knees before the living and the true God and they said, behold, the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. One man prayed. Many, many came and repented before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed as the Assyrian armies were assembled like the sand of the seashore once again around Jerusalem. And God sent that angel and 186,000 died in one night. Hezekiah prayed. We mentioned Hannah. I'll mention her again. One woman prayed. God gave to her a child that the Lord would use mightily in his kingdom. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Singular The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous woman, a righteous child, it avails much before the Lord. Cease not in prayer. Nothing restrains the Lord. He is too powerful. He can save by many or by few. So press forth in prayer, dear saints. What of the work of the church today? What of the saving of souls? Does the Lord need every church to be preaching revival messages? Every minister to be proclaiming the pure gospel? Or can he use, like he did 500 years ago, one rather vulgar monk from a small city in Germany to cause a revival that would spread throughout not only the whole country, but even to the end of the world. And we are beneficiaries of that revival today. One man. Can God use, Not cannot the Lord use one man such as Tyndale? to translate the scriptures into the common tongues that a little plowboy in England would know more of the scripture than the very Bishop of London or the Pope of Rome? One man the Lord used there. Hasn't the Lord used Luther and Tyndall, Huss, Augustine? We could go on and on and bring it into the modern day. Men like Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and Machen, who the Lord used at different times. Many other men were around them. Did they have a different spirit of God than we have today? Did they have it? Of course not. That same spirit that was with Spurgeon as he preached to sometimes over 20,000 in London, that was with Whitfield when not Christian Benjamin Franklin estimated that 30,000 could hear Whitfield preach. Did he have a different spirit than we have today? No. The same spirit that was with the apostles, that was with all those famous preachers throughout the years to the present day, that spirit of God is with us. That spirit is here. He's able to save by many or by few, by the strong or by the weak. We must go forward and proclaim that glorious gospel because the spirit of God is with us. We must defend that glorious faith because the spirit of God is with us. We must promote that faith because the spirit of God is with us and nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. And certainly that picture was there at Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago. As the word went out, how many times did God multiply his church in one day? Over 30 times. In one day, 3,000 were baptized from many different nations who heard the gospel in their own tongue. Is God not able to save 30 times this congregation size in one day? He surely is. For nothing restrains the Lord to say by many or by few. We don't despise the day of small things, but don't we long for the day of great things. We don't despise when the church is not full, but don't we desire the church to be full? We should pray for it. The Lord is able to do it. He's done it in the past. He can do it again. When the disciples prayed for boldness in Acts chapter 4, they prayed to Jesus, not for their safety from persecution. That wasn't number one. They prayed for boldness, that as they saw all the world against them, that they would stand firm on Christ and boast in his cross and the glory of his gospel. For there was no other way to glory and to heaven but through him. And what happened as they prayed, God caused the room to shake. Don't we desire God to cause his church once again to shake as his power and glory is revealed in this way, in the joy of the Lord that's found in the people of God in the sanctification of the people of God as they grow in the grace and knowledge of God, as those that are, that are tired and weary in their faith, like I have been in my Christian life before just going through the motions week after week. Can not the Lord revive the heart again of his people that they who are weak might be strong in the Lord? And we pray for it in this way, that the church would shake once again as the sinners that are outside of it would be converted by its glorious gospel and come into it. That the trembling would happen once again in the world, that they might see the churches that they laugh at as they close one by one and thousand by thousand, as they laugh at it today, that they would no more laugh, but that they might fear the Lord God who is bringing and filling those churches that once were almost closed and now they're alive and flourishing, that he would cause trembling in the world And as they tremble and as they look, that they might say, what is it that's going on in that place? And that as they go and they ask those questions, Christians might give an answer for the hope that's in them and say, come and behold what wondrous things the Lord has done for me. I was lost and dead in my sins and now I'm alive in Jesus Christ because he died on the cross for sinners. Do you know today that Lord Jesus Christ, there is no other way to peace No other way to joy, no other way to salvation, but through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Two men, two men stood up against an army that was uncountable. What great salvation the Lord wrought. Oh, that God's people would stand up once again, believing these precious promises that we have in the word, but more than that, believing the God who gave the precious promises in his word. And that we might know with great certainty and absolute assurance that there is nothing That restrains the Lord. He is able to save by many or by few. Blessed be the name of the Lord our God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we do bless your holy name for you are great and greatly to be praised. Among all the nations of the world, there is no other God like you. For all the gods of the world are idols, idols. They have eyes and can't see, ears and can't hear, mouths but can't talk, feet and they can't even walk. They must be carried around by their followers. They can break, they can be lost. They are nothing, but you, O Lord, our God, are the living and true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the savior of sinners. We ask, O Lord, that you would revive your people individually, that you would revive your churches, that you would stir us up with that faith that Jonathan and his armor bearer had to go forth in the callings that you have called us to in this life. And we ask, Lord, all these things for the glory and the advancement of your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.